There we go. Father, we're thankful for the evening. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together, uh, whether we get to see each other in person or whether we get to, to meet uh, via technology. And we are thankful for that. We know that it's not ideal. We do continue to pray for those people, especially that are being affected by uh, the different flu bugs that are going around, uh, the coronavirus, all of these different things that just are making people's lives miserable and sick. But we also um, pray that uh, with regard to these things that we might get past these things soon and uh, be able to be together in person because we realize just how valuable that is for us to spend time uh, with contact with one another, to, to talk, to interact at that level, and we thank you for it. And as we look at your word tonight, we ask uh, for clarity in the things that are communicated and in our understanding. And we thank you for this then. Amen. <clears throat> okay. I did get that. Okay. Let's turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, this, if you were to compare the introduction here in 2 Thessalonians 1 to the introduction in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, uh, the, the introduction is almost exactly the same. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus being a different version. Um, Silvanus being a different version of the name Silas. Okay? Because Silas was... Uh, was one of the prophets over in Acts 15 that ended up traveling with Paul. He was the one that was jailed with Paul in, uh, he was jailed with Paul in um, Philippi, beaten and jailed, I should say, and traveled with them. And now they're down <coughs> in Corinth, and uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are all writing the Church of Thessalonians, which we've gone over the first time. Uh, but then he says, and this is important for us, they are in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't normally talk about us being in God the Father. We have at least one other passage. We have, well, we have it in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 1, 1, and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. <coughs> Paul, almost all of his letters begins talking about those that are faithful in Christ, those that are in Christ, the saints that are in Christ. There's referring to us as believers that are together in Christ. But it's only in First and Second Thessalonians that he specifically refers to us being in God the Father as well as in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to sit on that tonight. We have one other statement by Paul that relates to this, and we're going to save that for the end tonight. But to understand and appreciate a little bit of what the significance of this idea of being in God the Father, I want us to go over to John chapter 17. John 17, and John 17 is properly the Lord's Prayer, because it's actually the prayer that the Lord himself prays. He actually is praying to the Father, and he's praying um, before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays that prayer. And uh, it would be worth your while to sit down, maybe tonight, before you go to bed, and read all through John chapter 17. It's a good chapter to read through. I read through this again yesterday, read through it again today as I was thinking about these verses. I checked my notes because I thought, well, maybe I have written this in my notes. I do have a notation to one of these verses in my notes, and that's about it. But I want to sit on this 
this idea that Paul brings up uh, here about being in God the Father. And if you look down um, to verse 20, from the early part of this chapter down through verse 19, primarily you would understand that he's talking about his disciples. But it says in verse 20, he says, But I do not ask concerning these only. Now, concerning these, meaning the 11 disciples. Judas hasn't been, hasn't been around. He left in the middle of John 13. He left to go out to betray Christ. So he hasn't been, he hasn't been around when Jesus has been talking to disciples in this upper room. And so he says, I do not ask concerning these only, but concerning those that, are, that believe or those who are believing through their word into yeah. me. So that would be us, right? That's where we get in. Because we're those that have read their word or people have told us their word, we've heard it, and we believe through that word into the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> By the way, when it tells us in verse 20, he says that I do not ask only that ask is uh, is the Greek verb eratao, which means to ask among equals. And the significance of that is is Jesus asks the Father as an equal, something that back in John 16 says we don't do when we talk to God. We don't approach God as equals. That's something that's reserved for the relationship with Him, um, He and the Father, I should say. But we come in here, and now He has this 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 request. Verse 21, and this is what he's going to ask now. In order that they might all be one. We'll stop there, first of all. Just look at that. That they might all be one. First of all, that they might be, in the Greek, is a subjunctive verb. He's going to repeat that same verb down in verse uh, 23. But when he's talking, no, he doesn't use it in verse 23. I thought he did. I, I should, should remember this. I just was reading through this again today. But the re subjunctive in the Greek means it's possible. So in other words, he says, my, my request is that they might be one. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anything that Jesus ever asked for that he didn't get? Nope. No. No. Never did. In fact, he says that at the end of John 12. In John 12, when he's talking to the Father, he says, Father, I know you always hear me. And some people would say, well, what about in the garden when he says, Father, let this cup pass from me? Well, see, we always think the cup is not dying. And it's he, Jesus was not asking to not die when he asked about the cup. He was talking about the extent of his spiritual death on the cross. He went to the cross not knowing how long that death would last. Significance of that is, if, his, if, that, if that spiritual death would have extended past the end of the cross, if that had happened, then he actually would have had to go to the torment part of Hades. Which, boy, I tell you, that, that kind of creates for us what we would call a theological conundrum. But he faces it not knowing exactly how this is all going to come about when that spiritual death is going to end. And it ends just moments, literally moments, before he dies physically. And you can read that when you put the accounts of all four Gospels together. You see all the different things that happen just like this, really fast, right at the very end. So, he is asking for something. And so I would take the might be here having to do with time. 
because we also have some other places where Jesus speaks as the subjunctive, and the subjunctive can express uncertainty as to time, not just uncertainty as to whether it will happen or not. So there's different ways of subjunctive verb. Uh, for those that have been learning Greek with me, um, we've been so far learning, learning verbs in the indicative mood. Indicative mood is the mood of reality. It's the way things are. Subjunctive is the mood of possibility. And so he's asking that they might be one. That's the next part, one. Um, one is essentially functions like an adjective. So we have three forms of the adjective of the adjective one. If it's masculine, it would be heis. It's feminine, it would be mia. And if it's neuter, it's hen. And this is hen. It's neuter, which we would translate that they might all be one thing. One thing. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that idea of one thing in a little bit in terms of what all this means. And then he goes on, that they might all be one, even as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also might be, oh, there's the second might be again. Okay, I knew there was two of them here. That they might also be one thing in us, in order that the world might believe that you sent me. And we'll talk a little bit about, I think, when that takes place. And that's, that has to do with the subjunctive part of this. But he says, is, even as uh, you, Father, are in me and I in you. This is not the first time he's made this statement. He made first time he made this statement is back in John chapter 13. So turn back to John, or not 13, John 14. Here in the upper room, he's speaking here with the disciples. Speaking to the disciples, and look with me at, um, let's go to verse 6. We'll pick up with verse 6. John 14, 6, Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip says to him, Lord, put the Father on display, or display to us the Father. And that would be enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been so long a time with you? And you do not know me, Philip? The one that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words which I speak to you, I don't speak them for myself, but the Father who is, abides in me, he is doing these works. It's interesting, he switches from words to works because both of those go hand in hand. Believe me, again in verse 11, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If not, then believe on account of the works. So two times here he uses this expression, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Now this is a statement about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is that the Father and the Son are not two separate beings. They're not two gods. Anybody that comes to you and say, oh, Christians believe in three gods. They don't understand the Trinity at all. And I don't expect most unsaved people to understand it. There are some unsaved people that have studied the doctrine of the Trinity in the course of Christian theology, and they might make a statement about it that would be semi-accurate, but they're not believers in the persons of the Trinity. But really, when you're talking about the Trinity, you're talking about three distinct persons, three realms of thinking and determining that are uniquely three persons, but they all share one exact 
one exact singular essence, which is bizarre for us, because we are one person to one essence, one person living in one body. This is three persons sharing in its entirety. They don't have to wait and take turns. They don't have to say, I want to use the hand now. Well, give me another 20 minutes till I'm done with the hand. And it's not like that. Their essence, because it is spirit essence, is, and it is on an infinite level, that spirit essence can be shared 100%. Turn back to John 10. This is a good illustration in John 10 of this, this idea of the Trinity. And this is in the section where Jesus is talking about himself being a shepherd. There are, two, there are two talks he has on being a shepherd that are really close together in this context. And uh, if we go to, uh, let's go to verse 28, John 10, 28. He says, I give to them eternal life, and they absolutely will not perish into the age. Your Bibles would say they will never perish, but they will not perish into the age. And there's a reason for all that, which we're not going to go over. And he says, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Now that snatch them out of my hand, to understand that, is a statement of eternal security. Nobody can take us out of his hand, the son's hand. Then he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Now he's even greater than the son in the realm of the son's humanity. Okay, and so he goes on, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So first of all, we're held in the son's hand. Second of all, we're held in the father's hand. Now, he's using the word hand twice. Is he talking about a literal hand? Is God like got this big, massive, massive hand that can hold millions of people? No, hand is a metaphor for God's power. It's a metaphor for God's power. And then he says in verse 30, I and the Father are, same thing we read over in John 17, we are one thing. In other words, the Father's hand and the Son's hand, in reality, is one hand. It's one divine power. That power that the Son exercises to hold us secure is exactly the same power that the Father uses to hold us secure. They don't have separate power. We have three adult men here. We have Josh, myself, and uh, Jeremy. And we all have some power, but it's not all the same power. Okay? That power is different. It's, there's power on different levels. It might be physical power to hold something for a long time. It might be mental power. I would, Josh would never ask me to step in and cover the business for him for a week because the business would burn in two days. <laughs> I, I just, I'm always amazed at his, his mental capacity. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ask me to describe chemical things, but I, I, I start up a conversation. I mention something and Jeremy's talking to me about chemical reactants and how this thing happens and my brain explodes. See, we all have power at different levels. It's not the same power. They're distinct powers. But the son and the father being eternally God, they have exactly the same power. They have exactly the same power because it is one power. There's, not, there's just not two identical powers. It's one single power, and they're holding us. And this is very important for understanding this idea we are one. We're one thing because they're one essence. 
They have the same essence with the same set of attributes, not identical attributes, the absolute same attributes, okay? So with that, then, let's go back over to John 17. John chapter 17, picking up again in verse 21. He says, In order that they all might be one thing, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also might be one thing in us. Some of your Bibles, no, I think they all have uh, in us. Some of your Bibles may not have one repeated there at the end of verse 21, but uh, there's good textual evidence that it should be included. Now, when he says, even as I am in you and you in me, he's talking about this, this mutual essence. You, you can't have the Father without having the Son. Now, he doesn't mention the Spirit in this. He doesn't mention the Spirit back in John 10. But we do find that the Spirit is also of this same essence because we have a number of scriptures. We're not here to demonstrate that. We're just trying to demonstrate the unity of the Father and the Son and that they have this one essence. They're one. Now, what does that mean for us then in verse 21? Does God just throw all of us together into a big food processor and blend us all up? And when you're done, you get this giant human puree? That sounds disgusting. Sorry, that was a gross image. <laughs> you took that too far. Yeah. No, that's, not, that's absolutely not what happens. It's the fact that we are all put into Christ. Christ. And in what? That's not what you were going to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say into the body of Christ. But yeah, we're put into Christ. And in Christ, we are we are all one. In fact, let's turn over to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and turn to the end of the chapter when you get there. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 And he's talking about why we're not under guardians, essentially nanny or babysitters anymore, as far as our, who we are as believers. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus is where you are a son of God. For as many as have been baptized or put into Christ, that's spirit baptism, that is not water baptism. Water baptism would put us into water. This is spirit baptism that puts you, it says, into Christ. When you, If you've been put into Christ, you have put on Christ. That put on Christ is Paul's writing to people that are primarily non-Jews. So they're Romans and Greeks and whatever other nationalities of people these are up through Galatia, part of central Turkey. And they had a, the, the Jews had a ritual called the bar mitzvah, in which a male child at a certain age graduated to the status of being a son in the family. Bar mitzvah meant son of the commandment. So they came where they were held responsible for knowing and abiding by the commands. The Greeks and Romans, the Romans especially, they had a ceremony uh, that they called the toga ceremony, in which they took off the garments of a child. A child wore a different kind of garment, and they put on a garment of an adult, and then they put this stoa around them, this, this kind of wrapped thing that went around the outside of that clothing. It wasn't, it wasn't a clothing, it wasn't the clothing they wore. It was like a thing that they wore on the outside of that clothing, and that was the toga, and that toga marked them as 
an adult Roman citizen. And so rather than using the bar mitzvah image, he uses this image of us having put on Christ. That's why we're sons. We're marked then as sons of God, because these are, remember, these are Gentile believers. And in Christ, where we put Christ on, he says in verse 28, there is not Jew or Greek. If you were a Jew or Greek before you were saved, you're no longer a Jew or Greek. And there is not a slave or a free. Might have been a slave before you were saved, might have been a free man before you were saved, but in Christ, God doesn't see any of that, doesn't count any of that to be true. There is not a male or a female. In Christ, he doesn't look at you as male or female. That's all gone. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, you're all one seed. You're all one man, which he then brings out in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise. In other words, we are all one in Christ. All of us are seen. The Christ, Christ is not, us being in Christ are not a whole bunch of new men. We're all one new man, Paul says. And let's flip over there and look at that before we go back to John. Go to Ephesians 2. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 15. Oh, there's, there's, Josh just showed me a, a picture of a, of a toga in a car, in a carving, in a statue. That's what he's talking about. Here, I could hold it up and maybe even people could, maybe even people could make That's that. That's from out uh, a statue in Corinth. Well, maybe they can see it. I don't know. Yeah, if you're looking on, you can see that. There you go. Okay. You got a chance to see it. There you go. You just Thank went you. to Corinth. There we go. Save, save me the money to travel over there. There you go. That's Corinth, the city? Yes. Yeah. That's not Which, the city itself. That was Corinth. And remember, and so Paul wrote two letters to them, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 15. Uh, just notice at the end of the verse, he says, In order that he might create the two, that is, people from Jews and Gentiles, in himself... This would be in Christ, but he's doing it in himself, into one new man. One new man. And that new there is new in kind. New that's different from what used to be. Something that's, there's something fresh about it and distinct. So there's one new man. So if we go back over there to John chapter 17, this is what he's referring to in verse 21, in order that they might be one. It's talking about the union of all believers in God the Father and in God the Son. It's in us, he says at the end of verse 21, that we are one. So in other words, verse 21 is not chiefly a request for functional unity. Are there implications for functional unity that come from that? Oh, yes. Yes, there are. There's implications for functional unity. But chiefly, verse 21 is a request for us all to be this one new man, this unity, this, this new entity that we understand as the body of Christ. Here in verse 21. Uh, but then notice he says at the end of verse 21, that the world might believe that you sent me. And we're going to come back to that statement in a little bit. I want to save that. Then he says, verse 22, and the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. So there's a shared glory here which I believe in the context has to do with eternal life because the Father 
Jesus made this statement back in John 5, 26. He said that the Father gave the Son, that's in the realm of his human nature, to have eternal life. Jesus was the first human being to possess eternal life while he walked the earth. And that was a big part of what John is about, is about what did God's life look like in action, in on a human level. Okay, I, I'm the creature, not the creator. So I will never experience eternal life in the way that God experiences eternal life. But I can experience eternal life on a human level. And it's not like I'm getting ripped off. I'm getting absolutely an incredible experience. In fact, John actually tells you that back in John 1, verse 4. He says, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. See, people were able to actually watch that life in activity. So he goes on, and he says, see, I've given that to them, which is exactly what he did. He gave them eternal life. Verse 20, in fact, we saw that over there in John 10, 29, it says, I give to them eternal life, uh, and they will not perish into the age, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. We saw that already. But notice, and he goes on in verse um, 23, or no, at the end of verse 22, the glory which you've given to me, I've given to them, in order that they might be one even as we are one. In other words, the same way that we are one, one thing and of one essence, that they also might be of one essence. Now, that one means we all have the same eternal life. Now, that's not true down here. We all have human life, but my human life is not. If my human life expires, guess what? The rest, of, if, if my human life were to expire right now, the rest of these people go on living. But if we all had exactly the same human life, if one of us expired, the whole thing would be, we'd all, we'd all die, wouldn't we? That's kind of a philosophical argument. But anyway, I, I don't like those. But I mean, that is the essence of this is that we all share an eternal life. We have, we all as believers have the same eternal life. And we're one in this way now. So we have, there's two aspects of one. One is that we're all part of this new creation, this one new man. Secondly, we are all one in the fact that we all have this new life. Then he notice what he says in verse 23. I in them. What do you and I get because Christ is in us? Eternal life. And just in case you haven't seen this for a while, flip over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. This is, again, this is, I always say this is one of those back pocket verses that you ought to remember where this is. Let's go to verse 10. 1 John 5 and verse 10, it says, The one believing in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one not believing in the Son of God has made him a liar, because he does not believe the testimony which God testified concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that he has given to us eternal life. God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his son. The one having the son has the life. The one not having the son of God does not have the life. So you have eternal life because you have God the son. He dwells in you and shares with us eternal life. Keep your finger in 1 John, but flip back over to John 17, 23. He says, I in them, and you in turn in me. So now the Father also indwells us, but he indwells us via the Son. In other words, the Son's literally there. The Father's literally there, but it's because the Son and the Father are in each other. And so he says, because you are in me. 
Now go back over to 1 John, but this time I want you to go to chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. 1 John 3 and verse 9, it says, Everyone having been born from God does not sin, does not do sin. That is, he doesn't practice sin as a way of life. doesn't say we don't sin. That would be contradicting what he actually said at the end of chapter 1 in the first part of chapter 2. But we don't sin as a way of life. Because his seed, referring to the Father's seed, abides in him, and he's not able to sin because he has been born from God. So we, so God actually dwells in us. His seed's there. He actually is, is giving to us on a human level some of what makes him God. Doesn't make us into gods, but some of his characteristics he's provided to us, which is why we can have real divine kind of love real divine kind of joy, real divine kind of peace. Turn to chapter 5 here in 1 John. In verse 1, it says, Everyone believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born out from God. And everyone loving the one having given birth loves also those having been born from him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we are guarding his commands and his commands are the commands about loving one another. So here he's again saying we're children of God and we've been born from God. And when we were born from God, God passed on to us some of his seed, some of his character, some of his qualities. I can't become omnipotent. I can't become all-powerful. I can't become all-knowing, that would be beyond the realm of what it means for me to be a creature. Okay? But I can't have love like God has. And I can't have peace. And I can't have joy. I picked those out of the, from the fruit of the Spirit. There are other qualities. I can have goodness like God has goodness. I can actually have a sense, real sense of well-being in these things. And those are because I am a child of God. So I'm a child of God with the life of God. I'm a child of God because I've been born from the Father, and the Father's in me. I'm a, I have the life of God because the Son dwells in me. You'd say, well, why can't they both just, it's because each one of them does a part. God just, God does it in an orderly fashion. He shares both of us, both those with us. So back in John 17, 23, he says, I and them and you and me that they might be, now he changes from just being one thing to, to a, a perfect form of the word, perfected or matured. That we might be ones that have been matured into one thing. Now he's talking about a practical aspect of this oneness we have in Christ. That we actually can be matured into this oneness. In order that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, when there's two times he's mentioned this about the world. One time he said that the world might believe that you've sent me. And another time that he says that the world might know. Now, I believe that there's two, there's two aspects of this. One of them, I would, I would suggest, is that, it, is that 
when believers actually function with the, the kind of love that God wants us to have, which is a very big part of John's writings, especially in 1 John, and to use that, you need to use God's nature, who you are as a child of God, and you need to use eternal life to live that out, that if you go to the end of John 13, this would be one side of this, so this is on a limited this is on a limited basis, but he says in verse thirty four, he says, "I give a new commandment to you that you should love one another. That is, you're loving other believers, even as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this, all will know." He doesn't just say all believers. He doesn't say all the world. He just says all. In other words, anybody has the potential. To actually know. They've got it, even the world out there, in all of the, the ridiculousness and horror that goes on in the world, they have some concept of what love is. They may not really get divine love by any stretch, but they do get something. And so when they see believers really loving in the way that God tells us to, they get that. There's something about it that they see, and they would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, and I know I have to reiterate this again and again for us, you can go out and love the world. You can do all kinds of great things for the world and try to try to help the world by doing stuff for them. But in reality, that is not how they know the love of God. We always think we need to show the world the love of God by loving the world, by doing all kinds of great things for them. But the Bible says it's the love we have within the family of God among one another. That, he says, is the love that the world sees and is able to identify as being the right kind of love. Now, having said all that, let me stick my neck out and make a statement. I think the only people in the world that actually maybe see this, for the most part, are those who actually become believers. Those are the ones in the world that God may use the testimony of this love, this witness of eternal life in us being lived out, that this is something God can use that gets a hold of their attention. So it's like evangelistic. It's evangelistic in that way. Yeah. So would, you, would that fulfill the generic use of the article there? Sure. All those that see it are of the world. Yeah, yeah. But there are other people that are going to witness this oneness, that he's referring to. And if you go over to um, the book of Revelation and turn to chapter 3. <clears throat> and you don't want to be a part of this group of people. You want to be a part of the people that see the love now and get it. Now I think, i would be honest, I, I kind of stuck my neck out. I think there are even people in the world that witness this love now that never believe in Jesus Christ and I think it actually just makes their condemnation greater. Because they're witness to they're witness to this supernatural love being lived out between believers, but they reject it. They, they pass it off as oh, that's just that's just Josh being a goody two shoes. That's just Josh trying to be a good good Christian person over there and impress me with how good he is, something like that. Um, but over here in uh, uh, turn with me Revelation chapter. Um, see. I should have this one written down, and I don't have this verse written down, which is really sad. Let me, just a second. Is that what I'm looking for, and I'm skipping over it? 
Oh, there it is. It is. Thank you, Josh. Okay. Let's let's go back up to verse seven. I want you to read down. I want to read down through this so you can kind of get a flow of this. He says to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write. These things says the Holy One, the True One, the One that is the key of David, opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have given to you an open door, and no one is able to shut it, because you have little strength. In other words, he looks at this church, he goes, you as a church, you don't have a lot of strength, church. That's not a criticism. This is one of the only two churches in these seven churches that has no criticism by Christ. He says, I've given you an open door because you have little strength. In other words, I'm doing something for you. You can't do. You don't have. There's there's people in the church. Well, I listen, I listen to a guy. Um, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing these days because he got himself into a little bit of uh, trouble by making some bad business choices. But he was a pastor over in the Seattle area. If I mentioned him. Uh, some of you probably would know who he is, but I listened to him at a pastor's conference where he said he figured we ought to give up on rural America and pastors ought to be starting churches only in the cities because God gets stuff done in cities and he gets stuff done with big churches. And this, these verse actually is telling you that's not the case. He actually takes you a church that has little strength and he gets something done with it. A lot of times, whatever's getting done in those big churches in fact, just as an example, and I'm not saying this is true of all those big churches, but Billy Graham himself made the statement that he figured, he he figured probably, and somebody can look up the statistic for me, but I think he said maybe 2% of all the people that respond at his conferences, that respond and make a profession of faith, he figured only 2% of them were actual genuine, actually genuine. That's Billy Graham himself. That was his estimation of how many were genuine in that situation. And and I think you'd be surprised sometimes if you went into some of these things where you think a lot of stuff's happening and you were just to give a blanket poll, tell me what's the gospel and tell me what does a person have to do to be saved, you would be surprised at how varied the answers would be. In fact, even in our church, I've done that twice over the years. I haven't done it for a long time. And I was surprised when one time, even as much as we go over the gospel in our church at that time, we had about a quarter a quarter of the responses on there, I was just like, whoa, that is not the gospel and that is not what you have to do to be saved. And I don't know who these are, people are. I just, because I just have a piece of paper that people have written these things down on. Anyway, so all that to say, God still is the one that ultimately gets things done. And then he says, and you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will give those out of the synagogue of Satan, those that say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. Behold, or look, I'm going to make them come and worship before your feet that they may know that I have loved you. Now, over there in John 17, it's that they might know that the Father has loved us. But here, he says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Now, are they worshiping us? Does it say that? It never says they worship us. It says they're going to worship before our feet. Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping Christ. But we are with him. We are with him as his bride. While he judges the world, they get to see we are the object of his love. And they're not going to be fighting. They're not going to be looking up at us and seeing a church fighting up there. I'm not going to be up there going, Josh, you're in front. You're always in front. 
You always have to be out in front. Why, why can't I be? We're not going to have any of that silly nonsense that goes on in the church today. Because that I'm using that metaphorically that I want to be an important person in the church. You know, there's going to be not going to be any of that. They actually will witness a unified group of people that will in unison recognize and glorify God while they're being judged and while they bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going to see us up there. And that is, what did you say, Clayton? Everybody's important. Everybody's important in the body of Christ. Absolutely. And so back there in John 17, when he says that we might be one, the subjunctive there, that idea of the potential is, potentially, we become one by being in Christ. That absolutely is true. There is a oneness in the body of Christ. There is a oneness that we all share eternal life, but there's ultimately a oneness where we are, in verse 23, perfected or matured into one thing, where we where the body of Christ reaches that culmination where all the members are in the body and all the members act like they're in the body. Sometimes we don't act like we're in the body. Sometimes we're acting like the devil's brats. Sometimes we're acting just like the world. We're trying to do everything in our power to keep up with the world so that we can have all the stuff that the world has and play all the games that the world plays and so on and so forth, whatever it might be. And we can do that at the church religious level. We can do it in our own personal lives. God but, created the world. God created you. So. That's correct. Thank you. Now, all of this, the significance of all of this for us then, if we go back over there to um, 2 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, is that when you have this statement about this, this being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that actually is a unified statement. When you have the statements about being in the Father and in the Son in John 17, it's about a union. It's about a union. Is this also about a union? It is. And so when he's talking about this, he's setting these, these believers up. These are young believers. This is Remember, he, Paul didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with these people. He, he had to run early. And things have only gotten worse. In fact, if you want kind of an opening theme for 2 Thessalonians, it's really about these believers having a view of the future in which they can look beyond the persecution and suffering that they're going through right now. And you'll see that as we go through. Go read 2 Thessalonians 1 tonight, and it'll be very plain that he's talking about believers' suffering. I said I had one last passage on unity that I wanted to look at tonight on this and turn back to Colossians, just a couple books back, in chapter 2. Now, the problem with this verse, I will be very honest, is that this verse has a very complicated... Let's put it this way. Most of the Bible is plain and straight, and even if there happens to be a Greek text that drops a word off or adds a word, it doesn't dramatically change the sense of the text. This is one of just a handful of passages in which there is a fairly complicated textual problem. And what a textual problem is, for those of you who don't know what that is, it means that among the 5,400 and some Greek manuscripts we have of the New Testament, they don't all agree at every point. The number one variation in Greek manuscripts is they don't all spell the words the same. 
<laughs> sometimes they've got a word and somebody drops off. One of the most common things is drops off what we call the movable new. Be like an N that you put at the end of a word to smooth out its pronunciation of the word that follows. And it gets dropped a lot between Greek texts. So one Greek text has it, one Greek text doesn't. It, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text. An iota, because <laughs> it's interesting because an iota is the last letter in those cases then. doesn't change that at all. The iota still stands there and has, still has the same meaning. But there are a few of those Greek manuscripts that have a little bit more complicated difference here. And I'm not going to go over all the details on that. I've done this in some of our Bible studies before. You kind of almost need a board or a chart or a handout so everybody can see how many different ways that this has been messed up. But the essence of this statement at the end of verse 2 comes down to, and I don't have... Uh, this is not the Greek text I was reading from earlier today, but this one actually says, in essence, this is the mystery of God, the Father, and the Christ. That's what it should be. It's the mystery of God, not just God, Christ, God, the Father, and it says the Christ. Now look back into verse, let's, go, let's just go back up to verse 1. He says, for I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you and those that are in Laodicea and as many as have not seen my face in flesh, or we might say in person. So this is one of the reasons that we presume that Paul had not met the Colossian believers. They were evangelized by a friend of Paul's while Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Luke tells us in Acts that all, all of Asia, the gospel went out through all of Asia during Paul's nearly three years in Ephesus. Verse 2, this is his struggle. This is what Paul wants. In order that your hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love. Notice that, your hearts being knit together in love. This is what he wants for them. And unto, not just being knit together in love, but also being knit together unto all the riches of a full assurance that I would say comes from understanding with the experiential knowledge, in this is the knowledge you're understanding, and you have a real experiential knowledge of the mystery of God, even the Christ. God the Father, even the Christ. In other words, the fact when you come to understand that you're not only in Christ or in Christ, but that you are also in the Father, that mystery, he says, actually is something that has the effect of knitting your hearts together. Your hearts are knit together because you have come to have a full assurance here because you have understood this mystery. Mystery means it is something new. So even though Jesus uttered those words in John 17, we don't know that the, that the disciples that might have been present heard or that they heard all of that prayer, much less that they understood that prayer. In fact, if you go back to John 16, I think verse 12 or 13, Jesus says, you know, I've got a lot of other things to say, but you guys can't handle it right now. Essentially, that's what he says. I can't handle it right now. You know, it'd be like trying to feed you too much right now. So would you take that ice there unto all riches for uh, a because of or in? I actually do have a because of. I just wasn't getting into it. Yeah, but it's because of all those riches. Yeah. So the understanding this mystery then you're in it together because it causes you to love one another. That's right. Yeah. In other words, I, I, I've used this illustration before of my wife and I. 
that, believe it or not, my wife sometimes ticks me off a little bit. She might do something, and I get my nose bent out of shape. Did you just silence her? I, I did. No. I, I, there, was somebody, there was somebody just got back on. No. There, there, but there are, there are times that she might do something, and then I get, I get upset. I get my nose bent out of shape, and I will leave. I'll, I'll go head over to my office, and I'll get out. And sometimes I've actually made it all the way in the office, sat back down in my chair, and I'm sitting there kind of like, I'm, I'm like, essentially, I'm like a, like a five-year-old. Well, she did that to me. So I'm, you know, so I'm, you're not doing that. You're doing an adult version of that. I'm taking my ball and going home, you know, that kind of stupid thing. But you know what? Almost, and I think I probably told you this too many times, but I just think that this illustrates it so well for me. It's like God always brings me back to this point. Is she in Christ? Yes. Are you in Christ? Yes. Does Do I see any difference? No. And as I just remind myself who she is and who I am and that God sees us in Christ, it's just like, this is stupid. I don't care what she did, what she said, whether she meant it or not makes no difference. And this does not happen. I just want you to think, my wife does not do this all the time. This, just, this happens once in a while. But when it does, it see is always dramatic for me that if I adjust my thinking, I go home and I say, I'm sorry for that. That was foolish. It was juvenile of me. Maybe I probably never used the word juvenile. I wouldn't admit to that. But but I am sorry for acting the way I did, for, for leaving the house like I did, and things like that. And I, I just that was that was just not nice for me to, you know, blow a small thing out of proportion or whatever I might do. So you don't apologize by saying, I'm sorry you feel that way? No, no. Okay. That'd, be, I, no. that'd be a mistake. No, no. Yeah, you apologize for your actions, not for how a person takes your actions, yes. Yeah. But then notice... So, they... Tim... Sorry, it's Robin. Oh, yeah. No, please. I, I feel like I'm missing the, um, the textual discrepancy or whatever what what's the discrepancy here in this this passage oh well the discrepancy is at the end of verse two it says it's the mystery concerning god the father and the christ so in other words and this is where he brings in that the and i didn't really clarify that but the christ is where all of us as believers are united in the person of jesus christ so he's seeing us all together first corinthians twelve twelve. As a body is one, as many members, all the members mean many are one body, so is the Christ, he says, 1 Corinthians 1, or 12, 12. And so that's what he's referring to here. So the mystery then is this, this new truth about, let's put it this way, I've got commentaries that say the mystery is, and they do the short version in the Greek text I have, the mystery is that Christ is God. That was no mystery. You, that's out of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ himself taught that. See, he didn't use that exact terminology, but it wasn't new. It wasn't a mystery. Okay. What is a mystery is, is that you and I are united together in such a way in Christ that that union even goes so far as our relationship in God the Father. Which, then verse 3, verse 3 takes that a step further for us. Clearly, it's in whom? In whom what? in God the Father, and in Christ, in this mystery, in this relationship that we have. Uh, we are, excuse me, in whom we uh, are, or we all are, excuse me, or are, 
I'm not getting this straight. I'm sorry. In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and experiential knowledge hidden. And not to chase this down too far, but that wisdom is going to be contrasted in the next verse to the pithy, pithy persuasive sayings that people are using, and then down in verse 8 to the philosophy that they're throwing around. Rather than chasing after that, he's saying, just focus on who you all are in the Father and in Christ, all of us together. Focus on in whom, that's where the treasures are found. They're going to be found in you relating to this position in God the Father and in Christ that you all share together. That's where you're going to find real wisdom, not chasing after these foolish earthly philosophy things. That's not going to do anything for you. So this is, again, this is the only other place I'm aware of. Maybe Josh knows of some others, but these, this is the only other place I'm aware of in Paul's writings where he, where he rather pointedly has this understanding of uh, our not only being in Christ, but also being in God the Father. But Jesus certainly bore, uh, brought this out over there in John 17. And uh, if you understand what we looked at there in those verses there in John 17, it, it again, it's pretty clear that we are one thing in them, not just in Christ. Okay. Now, I want to. I want to. How long? What time is it here? We're just about at our. We're just about at our time to stop. I, I wanted to bring out one just last thing, and we're we're going to bring this out later. But I believe one of the reasons that this is important, and I don't think you and I today, I personally don't think as Christians we appreciate this fact like first century Christians do. Because first century Christians experienced persecution on a level that I have never experienced persecution. I've experienced a little persecution for being a Christian, but very little. I feel like my extent is like the difference between playing NFL football and playing kindergarten gutsy out on the playground, you know, or something like that, or touch football. So, is that the way the NFL is playing football this year? Since we COVID, is it just flag football? Out there? I haven't, see, I haven't watched any football games. Oh my goodness! Anyway, but but you get the the point is is my level of persecution has been so small, and I suspect that that's true for most of us here especially in the United States. And yet, in that context over there in John, uh, turn, turn with me back over to John. Again, I, I don't want to belabor this too much tonight, but in John 15, John chapter 15, And look with me at verse 22. Uh, let's, um, let's go back up to verse 18. I was just trying to figure out where would be a good place to start. Verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, and that word hate isn't the harsher hatred. There's a, a harsh hatred that's listed in the works of the flesh. This is a milder hatred such as, I just don't care that you're even around. I really don't care for you. And if you get hit by a car, I'm not going to cry over it. That kind of a thing. That would be this kind of a hatred. Uh, so he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And that word hated there is perfect tense, meaning they hated 
him with the result that they continued hating him right up to this point. If you were from the world, then the world would, he doesn't use agape here, he uses phileo. The world would be fond of you. But because you are not from the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, it's because of this that the world has hated you. Remember this word that I've told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they have uh, excuse me, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they have kept my word, they will also keep your word. But they will do all of these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one that sent me. And then he goes on and he talks a little bit more about, again, their the world's hatred of him. Now, the, the reason I think that this is important in here, uh, just, just kind of as a clothing, closing thought. Most of what we've been talking about is about this oneness or unity that we share together as believers. But when Paul writes, even 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks about the fact that these people were saved and that they were waiting for the Lord to return. In chapter 2, he talks about they were saved, but they were saved at a time when there was a lot of difficulty in the whole process where Paul's teaching them. It didn't come easy. It's almost, almost from the get-go with the Thessalonians, persecution broke out. And he says at the end of the chapter, you guys are actually received harsh treatment at the hands of your countrymen, just like the Jewish believers did from their countrymen. And then in chapter 3, he talks about Paul being concerned that the tempter would have taken advantage of what he went through as well as what they were going through. And then you, so you see, they were having some persecution. You get to 2 Thessalonians, and the persecution has been ramped up, and we're going to see that. And I think it's important for us to understand and I don't want this to happen to us as Christians here in America. But you know, sometimes we are so comfortable and so accepted by the world that we don't rattle, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to really put ourselves out there with our gospel faith and our gospel testimony. Uh, we just, we kind of want to smile at the world and get our mail and go, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'll have a good day and walk on and just leave all this. But these believers actually experienced a great deal of persecution because they were believers. And I believe that's one of the reasons that Paul mentions this in the Father and in the Son, because it's something that knits your hearts together. And it's that kind of thing that, you know what? If you had to go out and live and work in the world like we do, wouldn't you look forward to coming together with other believers at the end of your day, which remember the early church did that. They met together at the end of every workday, not because they were required to, but because they wanted to be together with each other. They wanted that fellowship. They wanted that time together. What do we do? We come home, we flip on our televisions, we sit and read books, we, I don't know, whatever other things we do. Maybe we like working on our yard. That's not my kind of thing. I'll do that stuff, but it's certainly not the way I would find relax or way to relax at the end of the day. But you get the point. We just, we wrap ourselves up in our little cocoon of our life and we forget about this oneness that we share with believers. And I think Paul brings this up for this church in particular in both these times as he's writing them because of the level of persecution this church was, was having because coming together with believers was like coming home every day coming home. And I hope uh, wherever you go to church, whether you gather with us regularly or whether you gather in other places, that the believers you get together with, that getting together with them is like coming home. 
It's like coming home. Even if it's crazily, crazily, that's not a good word. Even if we have to do it some crazy way like Zoom, which this is not really coming home, but it's about as close as we get it sometimes, that we come home and we share this unity with saints. Um, yeah, I loved being with my family this weekend and with my granddaughter and all of that. That was a lot of fun and everything like that. But, and they're believers, so I can enjoy that time. But I also, when I'm away, it's like also kind of being away from part of my family. It's like, uh, this is family and this is family. It's, it's, you know, hard to choose sometimes. But um, I hope that that encourages you to think about your relationship to others, that you are in the Father and in Christ, and God sees us all knit together as one. And that encourages us then that we seek that as the source of where real wisdom and, and the treasures of wisdom are in that relationship and that we use that to motivate us to want to come together to come together as part of the family part of that one new man okay any questions here at the end i probably went a little long sorry i guess i should i, I don't know i don't know i shouldn't apologize for teaching the word of god this is hopefully encouraging <laughs> i can't imagine paul that having that's one of the things um, I actually was listening to somebody that I liked a long time ago, and he says it's just crazy what passes for Bible teaching in some churches. And they said, especially when you look at the fact that Paul, his his habit was that he probably preached for several hours every day uh, with people. And then I was reading a guy that was writing back in the 20s, back in the 1920s, and he, and he in the, doesn't get it, in the 20s he says, no wonder Christians are malnourished, he says, because they go to churches where they get sermonettes, 20 and 30 minute messages. That's almost the standard in most Bible college, what they teach you to do. Anyway, so anyway, I shouldn't apologize. I'm not using that to justify never, going long, but even then the time isn't the important thing on the message. It's, it's the, what it is, quality. Quality, exactly. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. Yeah, if you go for an hour, but all you're doing is just chewing the same fat over and over, then that gets or a Or it's not true. Or, or it's, it's, yeah, yeah, precisely. Okay, um, let me get out my prayer sheet and let me hit a few of these prayer requests if you're going to be able to stay with us for a little bit. Um, oh, that's the old prayer sheet. I didn't think it would be this many people. I'm not scare everybody away with my... Thinking we'd be tight in here. Oh. Um, I just want to say thank you. Let's thank God. Um, I uh, appreciate that for Katie and Isaac. And uh, that she is doing well. I thank God for that quite a bit. I don't know. I don't know if any of this is just this is a sermon after the Bible study. If you don't watch the videos on YouTube, I did a little one this weekend uh, just to fill in because I, I was, I'm a worry ward. I think I was telling Josh that, or maybe it was McLean last night. I was talking, talking to McLean for quite a while about the grocery store last night. And they said, I'm, in, I'm inclined to be a worry ward. I, I, and, uh, and I know we're not supposed to worry and we take it to God. So I was praying a lot. But then, but I just go back to this and I'd say, oh, but part of praying isn't just asking, it's worshiping. I know all this stuff. I teach this all the time. But you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're hard to keep your head. So I just, 
I started going back and I went through the Old Testament and I just started thinking about all the things that God has done. All the stories, God, you've done this and you did this. And, and I, just taking my time to think about all those, to think, you've got this. However you choose to work this out, whatever you choose to do in this. Because like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar and thrown in the fiery furnace, they say, we will not bow down. Our God can deliver us. And even if he does not, we still won't bow down. In other words, so just as an encouragement for you, uh, if you're going through stuff, as you're asking God for stuff to take time and think back through who God is. And sometimes a good way to think who God is is to just remind yourself of the stuff God's done. Maybe in your life, but the stories that we have in Scripture. Oh. I have a thanks. We had a, uh, down at the store this morning, we had a little incident that, uh, I'm, I'm walking in the back room and uh, Don and Beatrice, we sit out.